You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. So on February 14th, 1990, NASA's Voyager 1 spacecraft was just about to exit our solar system. And the, the mission of Voyager 1 was it was, it was out taking uh, atmospheric readings from interstellar space. I don't know what that means, but that's what it was doing, right? Send this thing way, way out there and see what we find. But it was on the verge of of leaving our solar system, and uh, the late astronomer Carl Sagan was a part of the mission's imaging team, so uh, taking pictures and studying them, and it was his idea, so they're about to lose this thing forever, it was his idea to have the spacecraft and the camera on the spacecraft turn and take one last photograph of Earth that it could send back before it leaves the solar system altogether. And this this photo they captured was the first ever portrait of our planet from the edge of our solar system. And just to give you a bit of perspective, the distance between Voyager 1 and planet Earth was 3.7 billion miles. Okay, that's how far away it was. And so if you look at this image, if you glance at it too quickly, you'll, you'll, just, you'll miss it. It'll just look like a dark image with some, some light on it. That's this little speck under this sort of like blade of light measures on the picture less than 0.12 pixels. It's like a speck of dust. And Carl Sagan gave this, this image the famous name now, Pale Blue Dot. And, and years later, he wrote a book by, by the same name. And as he's reflecting on Pale Blue Dot, Sagan, who did not believe in God wrote this. He says, look again at that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you've ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, Every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. And he says this, the earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. You see, pale blue dot, this image, gives us a visual perspective on two truths. It's the first time visually this perspective was given. This is what Sagan gets at. The perspective is this. The first truth, earth is a lot smaller than we realize. Right? That's what Sagan realized. And the second truth is that the cosmos, creation, the cosmos are far more vast than we can ever imagine. Now, as we come to Romans chapter 8, verses 17 through 25 this morning, God is giving us 
some needed perspective. Something that's hard to see in our own sight. Perspective on two very, very important realities. The first is our present suffering. And the second is our future glory as followers of Jesus Christ. Now Paul is writing to Christians in Rome who are like us, though in different ways, tempted to be overwhelmed by their sufferings, to despair, maybe even to question God's goodness in the face of trials. And so as Paul continues in Romans 8 to expound on the greatness of life in the Spirit, he says to us this morning, Christian, your suffering is a small stage in comparison to the vast cosmic arena of the glory that is coming for you. That's the message of this passage. Now, as those who live on this planet, planet Earth, that's what it's called, um, it doesn't seem very small, does it? It doesn't seem small to me. Our, our country itself is 3,000 miles wide. It'll take you at least four days to drive across it unless you're booking it, right? The oceans cover 139 million square miles. Mount Everest is five and a half miles tall. The Mariana Trench, the lowest point on earth, is seven miles deep. All of that tells you that this is very vast, right? Overwhelmingly so, it seems. But, this is what Pale Blue Dot shows us, it's merely a dust mite on an image compared to the vastness of the universe. Now, likewise, the sufferings of this life at times can seem overwhelmingly vast to us, right? Unbearable, natural disasters, diseases, violence, broken relationships, political upheaval, poverty, our own sin struggles that wreak havoc on our lives. They can seem unbearable, but here is the promise. Here's what Paul is getting at. There is coming a glory for the Christian that's beyond compare. And this promise, if you grasp it, will transform the way you live and suffer and see your sufferings today. So, Christian, what what God desires to do in us through this passage this morning is not to minimize our suffering and pain. That's not what God is trying to do. We'll see that in a moment. But what God is doing is he is instead maximizing our hope in the face of our pain and suffering. So that we can endure with patience. And this is a shift in focus in the chapter, right? So far in verses 116, we've we've seen that we're, we're free from condemnation and empowered by the Spirit because we're in Christ. That's been the focus. Now that identity piece continues, but verse 17 is a turning point. And the rest of the chapter from here on out focuses on the future and has a special focus on our suffering. 18 through 39. Paul's stirring up this hope in us that God will glorify us, one day make us whole. Because we are in Christ, nothing can stand against us, even the greatest suffering. So it's a turning point in this chapter. And in a sentence, here's what Paul is doing. If we were to sum up verses 17 through 25 in a sentence, it would be this. He is saying, Christian, you will suffer. But incomparable glory is coming. So endure with hope-filled patience. That's where we're headed this morning. Number one, you will suffer, Christian. Number two, incomparable glory is coming. And number three, endure with hope-filled patience. So number one, you will suffer. 
Again, verse 17. Look at, look at verse 17. It's introduction of the theme of suffering. Christians are heirs of God. Pastor Clint spent a lot of time expounding that last week. Heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Now, if you're just reading along, this might seem like a, a shock in, in, in Romans 8, if you're studying it, because so far, Romans 8 has been wonderfully bright, right? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's freedom from guilt. You're filled with the Spirit. You have the resurrection power of Christ dwelling in you. You live an abundant life in Christ. You are adopted into the family of God as sons and daughters. And we hear that and we go, hey, sign me up. And we might think, man, nothing bad can happen to that person. But then verse 17 comes and it reminds us of an essential truth that is hard for us, especially as Western Christians. Paul, is, Paul reminds us that there is no crown without a cross. There's no glory apart from suffering. Just as our Savior King, Jesus, suffered before entering His own glory, so we too, as those who are in Him, must suffer with Him before we enter into glory. So verse 17, Paul begins his teaching on suffering here by putting to rest the common question that many Christians have when they suffer. Does this hardship mean that God does not love me? Is this a sign of God's displeasure? And Paul says, no, absolutely not. In fact, you're a dearly loved child of God. And just like your older brother, Jesus, who suffered before glory, as he journeyed through life in this broken world, so too you will suffer before glory. And this is, I think this is hard for us. Because we want all of the blessings of Christ all of the good things that come with faith in Jesus, but we tend to forget that at the very center of the Christian faith is a suffering and crucified Savior. So what happens is when things are going well, we say, oh man, God's blessing. Praise you, God. Thank you for it. But then when suffering comes, we start to question him, and we're surprised by it. Now, this is, this is not just a, uh, an us-today problem. We see this throughout the Bible. One example of this is the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, the seven-mile road after Jesus' death and resurrection. They, they don't know he's risen yet. And, and these, were, these were disciples, followers of Jesus, so they were with him through all of the blessings of the ministry, the crowds, the miracles, all of the good stuff, right? When everything was going well. But then Jesus is crucified. And the pain of suffering swept over them. And they think it's all over. And they're hopeless. And they're questioning everything. And the resurrected Jesus begins walking with them. And they don't recognize him yet. But as Jesus hears of their hopelessness, he speaks to them. And listen to what Christ says, Luke 24. He gives them a loving rebuke. He says, O foolish ones. And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary? Hear that word? Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? I'm convinced Paul had the words of Christ in mind when he wrote Romans 8:17. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
What does Jesus tell these men? Don't be surprised by suffering. All of Scripture points to a Christ who suffered first and then entered into his glory. And the same is true with each of us. You know the, the thing that Pastor Clint has been saying over and over again through this series? To be in Christ means what's true of him is true of you and I, Christian. That includes his suffering. But that's not all. Paul goes on and he shows us that suffering, though this is true, it's something that must be considered. So what he's not saying is, listen, Jesus suffered, you suffer, stop complaining about it, let's move on. It's not what he says. He's far more pastoral than that, thank the Lord. He considers suffering. And by way of doing so, he shows us that we too should consider, we should think deeply about our suffering. That's what verse 18 says. For I consider that the sufferings, I think deeply about these things, they're weighty things. So as we consider sufferings with Paul, what are some things that we should see here? Well, first, Paul shows us, as he considers suffering, that suffering is intensely personal. It's intensely personal. Now, for this, we can think of Paul's uh, resume. He talks about this to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians 11. And just listen to this. This is what Paul went through. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less than one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Sounds like a country song, right? A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches." So as Paul writes to us about suffering, he does, he's not waxing eloquent from his study with his books, right? He is writing as someone who has experienced intense personal suffering. It's not just something out there for Paul. It's not something out there for his readers in Rome either. We'll see that as we go on through the chapter. Verse 35 speaks of tribulation for the Roman Christians, distress and violence and of course it's intensely personal for us as well we can go around this room and hear of illness the loss of loved ones financial troubles relational troubles emotional and mental struggles spiritual struggles we all know the trials of various kinds it's intensely personal Paul shows us but it's also cosmic it also affects all of creation. So Paul's not just speaking about human personal suffering, but also non-human suffering in creation. Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing. Verse 20, the creation was subjected to futility. Verse 22, the creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth. So Paul personifies creation and explains that it too experiences suffering. We see this in earthquakes, famine, sickness, diseases, and death. We see it all around us. And notice how cosmic suffering and personal suffering are often intertwined. The cosmic suffering of the, this 
earthquake and the, the aftershocks in Turkey and Syria, for example, it's not just creational. It also leads to devastating personal suffering for those people. And so here's the simple but painful reality that Paul is getting at here. He's saying suffering affects every single thing and everyone. It touches everything. And that leads us, if we're thinking about these, as Paul tells us, I consider these sufferings. If we're considering them, that leads to the question, okay, well, where then does this suffering come from? It's a real common question. Where does this suffering come from? And one common answer that you'll find is, is the secular response, which says, in short, listen, there is no creator, there's no redeemer, there's no plan, there's no purpose, you know, there's no ideal state from which everything has fallen, there's no hope, there's no future, there's no restoration. And, and the way that way of thinking explains suffering is this, suffering is just a fact, and you just have to learn to deal with it, right? That's the secular explanation. It's not very hope-giving, is it? Now, here's the problem with that. There's a lot of problems with that, but, but one is, that's obvious is this. When the world hears of great cosmic and personal suffering, like that of Turkey and Syria, we can give a, a, a number of other examples, the world seems to collectively and immediately have a deep sense that this, this is not the way things should be. And I'm not talking about people who just go to church. All people hear of what happened in Turkey and Syria, hear of the devastating loss of life, and they can't help but feel this is not right. And the reason is because there is a longing and a groaning from within. Because we are made in the image of God. And we know that this is not the way things should be. So Paul gives us a, a better explanation. You see, suffering has an origin story. This is not just the way things are or always have been. And when we go back to Genesis 1 and 2, we see that God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, and they were good. They were without corruption. And he created his image bearers, the apex of his creation. And he, he put them in his creation. And they were good without corruption and suffering. There was no personal or cosmic suffering in God's creation. And he gave man this, this responsibility to govern his work, to work it and to keep it. But what happened? Adam and Eve rebelled and... Verse 20 of Romans 8, God cursed the earth. He subjected it to futility so that thorns and thistles and parasites and viruses and earthquakes and, and famines and rebellious hearts have abounded ever since. And ever since then, all of creation, every human heart has experienced the longing of verse 19, right? The futility of life in verse 20, the, the corruption of this fallen world in verse 21, and this groaning pain for something or someone to fix it, verse 22. That's the origin story of suffering. So friends, if, if we're going to suffer well, we have to consider this. 
We have to consider our suffering, but we also have to consider the nature of it that is both cosmic and personal. The origin of it, that it is not just the way things are, but it is rooted in rebellion against God. That's the origin story of all suffering. It doesn't mean that any suffering you experience is in direct correlation with the sin you committed. That would be false. What it does mean is when we say, where did all of this come from? We trace that route back into the garden, Genesis 3, where man rebelled against God and God subjected his creation to futility. And and when we start to think of those things, we begin to see, okay, there may be a purpose in our own suffering, right? Dan Doriani says this, he says, through pain and suffering, God shouted, something is wrong. Echoes from Eden declare that this is not the way life is supposed to be. If suffering is abnormal, this nudges humanity to seek redemption. Today the world is fallen but not forsaken. For God refused to leave it a ruin. So Christian, you will suffer, but there is good news. As we consider our present suffering, we must also consider the future reality. Number two incomparable glory is coming look at verse 18 again for i consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us now paul loves comparing we've seen that already in romans 8 right he's he's compared life in the flesh with life in the spirit and here he's comparing present suffering with future glory and when he does the answer is simple he says guys it's a no contest The glory that is coming wins by a long shot. Doesn't even compare. Now, again, the temptation here might be to say, oh man, Paul, is he he downplaying my suffering? No, that's not what he's doing. He's not diminishing suffering. He's saying, listen, we can't ignore our present suffering. We must consider it, but we must always consider it alongside the glory that is to be revealed to us. So just as we considered present suffering, let's, with Paul, let's consider this future glory. And likewise, just as our suffering is personal, we see that this future glory that is coming for the Christian is also intensely personal. He says it is revealed to us, verse 18. Us means all who are in Jesus Christ, every Christian. Verse 23 says not only creation, but we ourselves will be glorified. What's he talking about here? Well, he's speaking of this future day for the Christian when Christ will return to do away with all sin and suffering and they will be transformed. It will be the day of the revealing of the sons and daughters of God, verse 19. That's what's coming. Paul speaks of it in 1 Corinthians 15 and says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye. The Apostle John puts it this way in 1 John 3. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. Christian, you and I can't even imagine the glory that is coming for each one of us. Our future transformation will take place in an instant. From weakness to strength. From from guilt to freedom. 
from pain to unmatched pleasure, from ignorance to knowledge, from folly to wisdom, from shame to a full sense of acceptance and purity, from worry to complete and total peace in an instant. And Paul says, you can't even fathom how incredible that day will be. He wants us to consider it. But it's not just personal. That future glory, like the suffering, is also cosmic. It also affects all of creation. Verse 21, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So not only will God's people be renewed, but the entirety of creation will be renewed. And it's not going back to what it was in Eden. It is even better than Eden. Saying that's what's coming. Isaiah 66, or Isaiah 65, 17 prophesies this. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Isaiah 65, 25 gives this poetic picture. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. If you're not an animal person, just know that doesn't normally happen, right? The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. You see what God is doing through Isaiah. He's, he's thinking of these ferocious pictures of violence. And he's saying it will be completely reversed. Utter peace will be all you know. And it will be so incredible that all of the pain and suffering that you've ever experienced will almost be completely forgotten. Every pain of creation, every pandemic, every earthquake, every flood, and so on, will be a mere memory in comparison to this glory. Now, we have to ask this question. and have to jump out of Romans 8 a little bit and consider all of Romans, but also the writings of Paul and the whole scripture. How can we be sure that this restoration is coming? How can we be sure? And here's the, the simple but wonderful Sunday school answer. Because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul hints at it when he mentions our redemption. Friends, oftentimes in the face of deep suffering, we ask God questions with answers that we cannot comprehend, right? Or answers we know deep down we'll never get this side of eternity. God, can you, can you just show me what, what you're doing in this, right? God, just, just give me the roadmap, right? Just, just lay it out for me in the outcome, and then I'll trust you. God, if I could just see. Now, friends, we might get a glimpse of some of those things, but we never get the full answers this side of heaven. Those things belong to the secret will of God. They're not revealed to us in his word. And if we're not careful in those moments, when we rely solely on those questions, and we don't get the answers, we'll start to believe the lie that God is silent in our suffering. And we'll miss this, that, G, that God has, through the cross of Christ, spoken very clearly on the purpose of suffering to each one of us in his word. You see, at the cross of Jesus Christ, we have two things. We have the greatest human suffering in all of history. Greater than any earthquake, greater than any loss of life or tragedy. We have the innocent Christ, the God-man. The Son of God unjustly killed at the hands of the wicked. 
Yet, simultaneously, at the cross, we also have, in God's loving plan of redemption, the greatest act of love and kindness for us. Same time, greatest act of tragedy and suffering and greatest act of love and glory. For Christ willingly died that we may have life. He became the curse so that we may be freed from the curse of sin. And how, how do we know that this was accomplished? How do we know that the mission was fulfilled? Well, because he didn't stay dead. He didn't stay defeated. He defeated suffering, sin, and death when, when God raised him from the dead. Great suffering, greater glory. That's the cross in a nutshell. And so at the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus put suffering to death by his own suffering and death. And he inaugurated, he inaugurated the end of suffering once for all. So when someone asks you, why isn't God dealing with all this suffering in the world? You can say he is through the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul puts it this way in Colossians 1, 19 and 20. For in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, Creation and his people. That's what he's doing. How's he going to do it? Whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's Paul's answer to when suffering will be defeated. So friends, listen. I don't know why God hasn't ended suffering at this time. I I really don't. And neither do you. But the cross shows us that he is committed to ending it once for all. So much so that he entered into our suffering to redeem us from it. There's no other religion where the God, the leader, enters into the suffering to redeem his people and end suffering. That's only in Christianity. And Romans 8.23 says, "We, we eagerly await this day when the fullness of our adoption will be fully realized and the completion of glory will be ours. So friends, you will suffer, but know this, incomparable glory is coming. You can be sure of it because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, number three, what do we do with this, right? Well, we endure with hope-filled patience. So Paul is describing this in-between of present suffering and future glory, right? And it's filled with these descriptions that we can all relate to, longing, groaning, eagerly awaiting, He uses the the imagery of childbirth in verse 22, which I don't know by experience, but I've I've seen it. Seems very painful, right? Intense pain, and then boom, suddenly new life. That's how Paul describes the the groaning and longing and life as we await for this glory. He speaks of first fruits in verse 23. We get a glimpse of the harvest now, but, but the full harvest is still coming. But he also tells us that we can have hope and patience to endure today. We don't just sit around and wait. Verse 24 says, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope is seen. Hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. He's saying, brothers and sisters, you can endure with hope-filled patience in the midst of this suffering as you wait this coming glory. Now here's the question. 
How do we do this? How do we today endure as Christians as we await this future glory and face through all of the sufferings of this life? And so I just want to move to a time of giving you simple five things, practical applications on how to um, endure with hope-filled patience. First, this is not a number, this is an aside. I noticed that we have this great little book, the back table in the CCF mini booklets, A New Normal, Learning to Thrive in Suffering. So if that's something that would benefit you, this 60-page book, I'd encourage you to read it. But let me give you just five things as we apply all of this, practical application of present suffering and future glory. Number one, look to the cross of Jesus Christ. I know we just said it, but we're going to repeat it again because it is essential. We see this in the example of a man named Horatio Spafford who wrote the hymn that we'll sing in a moment, It Is Well With My Soul. Spafford knew a life of suffering. He had major financial loss of his businesses in the great Chicago fire of 1871. Shortly after uh, this time, a physician recommended his family take a, a trip to Europe for his wife Anna's health for improvement. And so they planned the trip and they, um, Philip had to stay behind. He was going to join them uh, uh, later, or Horatio, sorry, had to stay behind and was going to, to join them later. And so he sent his wife and four daughters on the ship that set sail from New York. And on the seventh day of the voyage, this was a, a November in the 1870s, cold water on the Atlantic. On the seventh day of the voyage, in the middle of the night, the ship struck a Scottish cargo vessel and sank within 12 minutes. And Anna survived, but all four daughters were killed, along with 222 others. Only 28 survived. A man who knew great suffering. And he later, as he was reflecting on all of the pain and suffering in his life, sat down to write a hymn, which began like this. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. In verse 1, he's reflecting on present sufferings, right? And if you look at the end of the hymn, he also reflects and considers the future glory Final verse, and Lord, haste the day when my face shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend, even so it is well with my soul. Spafford knew incomparable glory is coming. But here's what's interesting to me about this hymn. It's the middle verses. Because here, Spafford, though he's writing a hymn about suffering, his own suffering in this present life, he reflects and is drawn to the cross of Jesus Christ as he thinks of tragedy. Verse 2, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Spafford, in the midst of his intense present suffering, as he awaited the future glory, he set his sight on the cross of Jesus Christ, where the greatest suffering took place that he may have life. Friends, may we do the same as we face suffering. Look to the cross of Christ where redemption is found. Number two, live by faith in the unseen. Live by faith in the unseen. 
Verse 25 of Romans 8 says this, if we hope for what we see or what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. See, you and I need more than physical sight and understanding in our sufferings. If, if you and I depend only upon what we can see visibly around us, our suffering will crush us, right? We'll think God is, is distant and careless if we can't tangibly see that he's moving. But that's not where our hope is. We walk by faith and not by sight, right? Ray Ortland says, trusting in God, not explanations from God, is the pathway through suffering. Right? Trust in him. Live by faith in the unseen. Fill your mind and heart with his word, his truth, so that you can form a good theology of suffering and know that when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that he's with you. Even when you can't see him. Live by faith in the unseen. Third, pray honestly and often. One of the things I've recognized over the last several years, especially as one who counsels others, is how, how afraid many Christians are to pray honestly how they feel before God. As if he doesn't already know your emotions. just want to point that out there, right? You feel like you should approach God with sort of form prayers and not tell him when you're angry or when you're confused. You think, am I being irreverent here? No, friends, when you're suffering, pray honestly and often. He can handle it. Groan to him. Share your longing. He is your father. You are his hurting child. Friends, if you need help with that, if you, if you just like praying openly and just sort of pouring out your heart in prayer, please read the Psalms. It, it has the full array of emotional outpouring from suffering saints. Go to God in your pain and struggle with your questions. Pray honestly and pray often. This is essential. Fourth, and this is related, know that God is God and you are not. In our suffering, we must know at the end of the day, we have no right to put God on trial. He is holy, righteous, all-knowing, all-powerful. We are not. He is the God of the universe and the creator. We are his creatures. He is working all things together according to the purpose of his will. And we have no idea how. So while we pour out our hearts to him in our pain, we must do so in humble submission to him as king. Know that God is God and you are not in your suffering. And then fifth and finally, expect God to grow you in your suffering. Christian, when you, when you suffer with hope-filled endurance and patience, you'll become more like Jesus. It goes back to verse 17. Provided that we suffer with him. Suffering is a refiner's fire that melts away the dross of our lives, revealing the precious metal of holiness. So as you suffer, you will begin, as a Christian, you will begin to stop treasuring the futile things of this world as much as you do. You'll realize your, your sin more and your need of grace more. You'll run to him more. And you will slowly learn and grow through this, more like Jesus. And through that, you'll learn to count it all joy when you suffer because your faith is being tested and strengthened. And you'll learn to say with Charles Spurgeon, a great sufferer in his own right, said this, I've learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages. So brothers and sisters, may, may God give us 
this perspective on our suffering. Our, our present suffering is a small hill. Right? The glory that is coming is Mount Everest. Our present suffering is a spoonful of water. The glory that's coming in the Atlantic Ocean. Suffering is this pale blue dot of earth. It seems overwhelming now, but the glory that is coming is more vast than you and I can imagine. So our our present pain is a small stage in comparison to the vast cosmic arena of God's glory and how encouraging it is to us. So as we suffer, may we endure with hope-filled patience. Let's pray together.